We had planned some time today for a question and answer time. And I had asked you a few weeks ago if you would uh, email in some questions that you might have and we could take a look at some of those uh, as a part of the service today. Well, I didn't get any questions. So uh, either, you know, it's been really clear and you uh, understand all of this or you forgot. And uh, so uh, today I'm going to go into the message. And if there's some time at the end for a question, we'll take that spontaneously here. Uh, otherwise, I just ask you to, uh, you could send me an email with a question, and in a future week, we'll just address that as well. But we're going to try something new and just see how it goes here. Uh, today, though, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, 1 to 11, as we continue our study in this book. And I'd like to read it for us as we begin. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, what a great passage of Scripture that is that speaks of these wonderful treasures we have in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that the good news that is shared here would simply uh, carry with us into this week, that we would meditate upon it, that we would be grateful for what you have done in Jesus Christ and that we would never take for granted the wonderful treasure that we have in Him. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 5 is one of my favorite passages in this particular book. Uh, This chapter, along with chapter 8 and chapter 12, are just really high points as we work our way through the book of Romans and understanding what God has done for us. As Paul started this letter, he began with the bad news. He talked about our human condition, our sin, that we have all sinned against God and we've all fallen short of His glory. We need a Savior. He talked about how people in this world uh, suppress the truth about God. They reject it. They deny it. They don't want to deal with it because if there is a God who is holy and just, then we are accountable to Him. And as the Bible says, one day we will indeed all stand before Christ to give an account for our life. 
Those are sobering truths. And there are people who just simply don't want to face that, don't want to think about it. But choosing not to think about it or deny it isn't going to change it. One day we will all stand before Him. And so we need to be ready for that day. What Paul does in the beginning of Romans in those first three chapters is he shows us our need for a Savior. And then he talks about God's provision. That we can be saved by faith, by simply placing our confidence, our trust in God and what He has done for us in Christ. He points to Abraham as the example of that faith, one who in the Old Testament was saved by that same kind of faith in the promise of God. And he believed God. He believed that what God had said he could do. And now in chapter 5, now comes the good news. As Paul begins to unfold these things that are the fruit of justification. Having been justified, having been declared righteous in the sight of God, what is it that is now true of us? That's what Paul's going to talk about in this passage. And we need to hear that. I mean, life is full of bad news. Every time you turn on the uh, television or you read a newspaper, you have all kinds of things that are the evidence of the problems going on in our world. In fact, it was interesting that uh, the last time I spoke on this passage was in November of 1990. And I I had in my notes uh, an article that's kind of yellowed, faded now, that was from November 24th, 1990. And I want to read it for you and see what you think. It said, After the 80s, Americans are entering the age of anxiety. If you're a worry wart, these could be the busiest days of your life. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers are camped out in the Saudi Arabian desert, poised for war. We were about to enter into the Gulf War. The economy's flat. Gas prices are up. Housing sales are down. Unemployment is rising and the stock market is in a slump. The level of anxiety in the nation is rapidly rising. Suddenly a nation that was fun-loving and free-spending during the 80s has become a great groveling mass of worry warts. The excesses of the 80s, the growing national debt, the carefree loan policies of savings and loans, and the get-rich-quick mood on Wall Street may be coming back to haunt us. And that is only part of the worry wards problem. Every time he picks up the newspaper or turns on the television, a worry ward is confronted with more bad news. Isn't that interesting? You know, you could uh, simply change the date and uh, a couple names in there and that could be in tomorrow's newspaper. Same kind of deal as problems come and go all the time. That's why we need good news. And this morning I want you to just simply kind of sit back and listen and really relish what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. These are the things that are the fruit of of justification. Number one, we have peace with God. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. As Pastor Dan mentioned a couple weeks ago, the word peace in this context is not just that inner calm that we may feel knowing that our sins are forgiven. That is wonderful. That is great news. But the word peace in this context refers to the end of hostilities, like the end of a war 
It's that good news that comes when nations have been fighting and then they agree to peace and they settle those conditions and the war ends and there is jubilation in that. The Bible tells us that we were at war with God and there were hostilities. There was enmity, hatred. There was alienation. There was this conflict that we had with God. And God Himself chose to make peace through His Son. He sent His Son who would be that one who would pay the penalty that we deserved. He'd be the mediator of this new covenant that brings peace and forgiveness. If we don't know Christ as our Savior, we are still at war with God. There is still that tension, that hostility that is there. And some people choose to just ignore God. Others reject Him. Some shake their fist at God and they are angry at Him. And they still live with that tension and hostility. But Christ has come to bring peace. For those that are living apart from God, the Bible tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. God hates sin. God will and does punish sin. And so this wrath of God hangs over our heads if we do not know Christ as our Savior. When Jonathan Edwards read his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He pictured people as hanging over the very fire of hell, the flames of hell by a thread that could snap at any moment. That's how close we are to the edge when we do not know Christ. And people trembled at the picture that he was portraying there. But all of that is taken away when we come to know Christ. And we stand on solid ground in Him. We are pardoned of our sins. We are forgiven and we are set free. And what Paul declares in this passage in verse 9 is that we have been saved from God's wrath through Him. It's good to remember what we have been saved from. We have been saved from these terrible consequences of our sin. And we now have peace with God. The fact that Paul puts this first in the list of things that he is going to talk about shows how important it is. This is the essential thing that God has sent His Son to be that atonement for our sins. And we can have peace with Him. Not only that, but he tells us here in verse 2 that we have been given access into the very presence of God. We have gained access into this grace in which we now stand. Now think about that. We have the tremendous privilege to come into the presence of God at any time because of what Jesus Christ has done. In our country right now, there is this transition that is going on in the White House with our president. When Barack Obama moves into the White House, the whole family moves in whole new set of advisors and counselors that have access into his presence. It's a unique privilege. But I think those that are going to be, uh, well, the people that are going to be affected most are going to be his own family, and in particular, his daughters who are going to grow up in that White House for a time. I mean, we haven't seen something happen like this since the days of John F. Kennedy, and we'd see those pictures of his little son under the desk in the Oval Office. What a unique privilege that they have 
to be able to go into their father's presence at any time as president of the United States. The privilege we have, though, that we have been given is to come into the very presence of God through Jesus Christ. Because we know His Son, we can come before the Father's throne and we can bring our prayer requests. We can come with our praises to worship Him. We can give our thanks to God. We can do that at any time and in any place because we are His children. Paul tells us that through Christ we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. It is done. It is done. We stand in the very presence of God because of what Christ has done. He tells us in this passage that we have joy in Jesus Christ. And the word rejoice is used here three times in this passage. It's a strong word. It's a word that means to boast or exalt. That this is something to shout about. This is indeed good news that we have been given. And so this joy flows over in our hearts. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, he tells us in verse 2. We who were sinners, we who had fallen short of God's glory, now one day we'll see Him in all of His glory. We who missed the mark, who did not deserve this at all, now will one day come into the very presence of God. What an astounding thing that's going to be. You know, I know many of you have probably seen uh, the musical that's going on at the high school. It's been fun to see some of our students in there. I know Rachel Lundberg and Joe Burkholz and there are others, but they have a couple of the lead roles. And it's the story of this little orphan Annie who is adopted and taken into the home of a billionaire. You know, this Daddy Warbucks who takes her in as his daughter into his home. And she's stunned going from an orphanage into the presence of this what looks like a palace to her. And when she goes there and she sees everything and all of the people that are there to wait upon her, she is overwhelmed by it. Can you imagine what it's going to be like for we, who all we have known in this life, you know, living in this kind of fallen world, will one day be ushered into the very presence of God and see His fullness and His glory. I mean, I think our jaw is going to drop and we're going to walk around for quite some time in heaven looking at the wonders that God has prepared for us. And we will be speechless. What can we say to such grace? Paul tells us that we also rejoice in our sufferings in verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings not because they are good in themselves and not because we like pain or like to suffer. We rejoice because of what they produce in our life. We have a different perspective on trials now, a different perspective on suffering because we see how God uses it in our life to develop perseverance And perseverance grows our character. And as our character grows, so does our hope in God. And thirdly, we rejoice in God who has made all of this possible. We rejoice in God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ. The suffering that 
Paul talks about in this passage does not simply refer to persecution. It includes many things. In fact, in chapter 8, he spells out what some of those sufferings are. They are things like troubles and hardships and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. If you were to take those things and talk about that in our own day, I mean, do you experience troubles in your life? Do you have car troubles or times when an appliance breaks down or something needs to be repaired at home? Yeah, all of us do. We have troubles. We have hardships. There are times when people have to do without because there's just not enough money to stretch to the end of the month. There are times when it is really difficult trying to make ends meet. Maybe you're trying to send kids through school and you had planned to do it this way and then something else happens. For, for all of us, maybe you had planned to retire at a certain point in time and as one man said to me this week, his 401Ks become a 201K. I mean, that, that's kind of how it is. And you just look at that and, and it's tough. We may not experience persecution in terms of threats on our life, but there are times when we see that hostility in our world or we feel that toward Christianity and our faith. Famine. Famine for an agricultural economy was like losing your job. I mean, it could mean the loss of your income for the year. It's like unemployment. Or nakedness, that's like being homeless. Or dangers. We're sword. We have dangers in our world too. And all of those things are part of life. In fact, it is a normal part of the Christian life to experience troubles and suffering. And God uses those things to refine us and to help us grow in our trust in Him. That's what these words then mean. Like the word persevere means to bear under or to endure with patience. We grow through these things. We continue to obey God. We continue to trust God. And He takes us through these trials in our life. The word character refers to someone who has been tested and proven faithful. They are growing in Christ-likeness because they have learned to put these things in God's hands over and over again. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, that our faith is of greater worth than gold to God. It is of greater worth than gold which perishes. And that one day it may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And those of you who have experienced those things in your life and you have held on to God and you have walked with Him and He has held on to you and you have loved Him and persevered, God's going to reward that. And none of those experiences in our life are going to be wasted. Everett Harrison wrote that the newborn child of God is precious in His sight. But the tested and proven saint is even more dear to Him because such a one is a living demonstration of the character-developing power of the Gospel. It is hard for us to rejoice in our sufferings, but through them we grow closer to Him. And we can come to that point where we praise God for what He has done. Some of you will recognize the name Lloyd John Ogilvie. He was a pastor and he served uh, for a number of years in the late 90s into 2003 as the chaplain of the United States Senate. 
He was a very gifted speaker and preacher. And he shared this story from his life in those latter years. He said, This past year has been the most difficult year of my life. My wife has been through five major surgeries. Radiation treatment and chemotherapy. And she would die in 2003. During the same year, I suffered the loss of several key staff teammates whose moves are very guided for them, but a source of pressure and uncertainty in my work. People who he had worked with and depended on for a long time were now taking other positions. Problems which I could have tackled with gusto under normal circumstances seemed to loom in all directions. Discouragement lurked around every corner, trying to capture my feelings. Prayer was no longer a contemplative luxury, but the only way to survive. My own intercessions were multiplied by the prayers of others, and friendships were deepened as I was forced to allow people to assure me with words that I had preached for years. No day went by without a conversation, a letter, or a phone call giving me love and hope. And the greatest discovery that I have made in the midst of all the difficulties is that I can have joy when I don't feel like it. Artesian joy. (laughs) What a great picture. Do you have that kind of joy in your heart? How do we experience that? Well, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who produces that in our life as we allow Him to work in us. And our joy grows as we abide in Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. God wants us to experience that kind of joy in our life, a joy that overflows, a joy that is contagious. It doesn't mean that we are happy all the time doesn't mean that life is always good. Sometimes life is tough. And yet we can sense the presence of God in us. And we have that deep, abiding joy. And thirdly, he tells us that we have hope for eternity. When the Bible uses the word hope in passages like this, hope is not wishful thinking. It's not like we sometimes define it or people use it in our world. I mean, sometimes people in our world will say things like, you know, I hope I win the lottery. It's kind of a wishful thinking. Or I hope I don't get sick. Or we, you know, desire not to get sick, but we just don't know. No, the word hope in the Bible is the confident expectation that what we are waiting for will come to pass. There is a certainty about it. That that the hope that we have, we have confidence because of who God is and what He has promised. And so we trust that these things that we hope for are going to happen. The only reason we use the word hope is because we have not seen them yet. We have not attained to it. But it is there and it is coming. And so in verse 2, Paul can say we have hope. We have a confident expectation that we will see God in all of His glory. We have hope. We have a confident expectation that we will see Jesus and we will be made like Him. We are going to be changed and we will see Him face to face one day. And we shall be made like Him. And we have hope, a confident expectation that we have eternal life in Christ. 
And the things that happen in this life, God is using them to prepare us for eternity. The blessings and the trials, the joys and the sorrows are all part of His plan as He is at work in our life. What is our hope based upon? It's based upon two very significant things in this passage. It is based upon the love of God in verses 5 to 8. And it is based upon the finished work of Christ. We have hope for eternity because God loves us. He tells us in verse 5 that hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He has richly given us. It's not a trickle. It's not a little stream. He has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the greatest demonstration of God's love is the cross where Jesus died. If you look at verses 6 to 8 and and then into the next section too, there are four words that Paul uses to describe our condition. He says that we were powerless. We were unable to save ourselves. We were ungodly. We did not love God. We were sinners. We had broken God's law and rebelled against Him. We were enemies or rebels of God. And yet in spite of all that, Jesus Christ died for us. Do you know how extraordinary that is? I mean, Paul gives us this example in verses 7 and 8 that very rarely will someone die for a righteous man. And though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. You might hear a story now and then where someone was willing to lay down their life for a friend, a good man. But that's the exception. And yet here in this example... We were neither righteous nor good. We were sinners. And Christ died for us. During the Revolutionary War, there was a man who was a preacher of the Gospel. His name was Peter Miller. And he was faithful in his proclamation of the Gospel in the town in which he lived. And he had an enemy in that town who hated him, who mocked Peter Miller and who ridiculed those who followed him in the church. And one day this enemy of Peter Miller was arrested for treason and sentenced to be hung. And Peter Miller, that pastor, made his way on foot some 60 miles to George Washington to make an appeal to George Washington to pardon this man for what he had done. And when he came to George Washington and he told him the circumstances, George Washington said, I'm sorry, I... I can't do that. I don't think it would be right for me to pardon your friend. And Peter Miller said, My friend? He's not my friend. He's my worst enemy. And George Washington said, What? He said, That puts this in a different light. You mean to tell me that you have been willing to walk 60 miles to pardon your enemy? In that case, I grant the pardon. And Peter Miller took that slip of paper and he took it back. And he made haste and he arrived as his enemy was about to be taken to the gallows. And when that man saw Peter Miller standing in the crowd, he said, Old Peter Miller has come to have his revenge by watching me hang. But he was astonished as he watched the minister step out of the crowd and produce the pardon which spared his life. 
It was a remarkable act. And yet what Peter Miller did is just a small thing compared to what Jesus Christ has done for us. I wish I knew the rest of the story to know whether or not this enemy of Peter Miller came to faith in Christ or did he spurn God's grace. I think about that in the same way for people who hear the Gospel today. Will they come to Christ? Will they respond to this invitation that has been given? Will they receive the pardon that has been granted? Or will they reject it and harden their hearts from Christ? God has shown how much He loves us through what Jesus Christ has done. Our hope is based upon that great love and our hope is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, what He has done on the cross for us. Look at verses 9 to 11. In this passage, Paul says, Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? And again, he uses this example, For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It is an argument from the greater to the lesser. I mean, if if while we were enemies, Christ was willing to die for us and pay that ultimate penalty for us, don't you think that God will see us safely home now that we are His children? Yes, indeed He will. If He has already done the most gracious thing He could do while we were in that state of hostility, now that we are His children, when we come to faith in Christ, He will indeed bring us safely home. Romans chapter 5 and Romans 8 at the end stand like bookends on this middle section. In chapters 5 to 8, Paul talks about sanctification, how it is that we grow in our relationship with Christ. And on each side of that, he wants to give us this assurance of salvation that our salvation is secure. Once we come to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, there's no one that can snatch that away. And we are to grow in that relationship with Him day by day. And so at the end of chapter 8, Paul's going to say a very similar thing to what he is saying here. In chapter 8, he raises these questions. He says, what can we say in response to all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he'll say, if God's the one who has pardoned us, who can bring any charge against us, his children? And he'll say, if God loves us this much, then who can ever separate us from his love? The answer to all three questions is that no one can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus. That's where we stand. What a great treasure we have. We have peace with God. We have joy in Christ. We have hope for eternity. And it is all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed richly blessed as your people. And I thank you for the truth that is proclaimed here in your word. 
May it give us confidence in our relationship with You, our desire to walk with You and to grow in Christ each and every day. Lord, may it make us bold to share this good news with others who do not know You, to pray for our friends or relatives or family members who have yet to come into a relationship with Christ, that they might know You and that their sins would be forgiven and pardoned and that they would experience these blessings that are yet to come. Father, may we honor You in all that we say and do. And may we live as Your children. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know that the worship team came up here, but there is a little bit of time. And I'm just going to ask if there's a question or two. We're just going to uh, do that. And then uh, if there's not, we'll uh, end after that. But you know, is there a question whether it's related to this message or something that we've already covered in the book of Romans? If there's a question, just raise your hand and I will uh, hear from you and then I'll repeat it. Ron? Good question. Uh, I'll repeat it so others can hear. Uh, the question was asked that Jesus said, you know, that in, that in that day that is coming, that many will say to Him, you know, Lord, didn't we do these kind of miracles or didn't we go to church or didn't we do this or that, you know, and He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's a sobering statement that there could be those who think that they are saved and are not. How do you explain that? You know, and that's why when, when I talk about the gospel and I talk about assurance of salvation, that assurance of salvation is based on some pretty specific things that are shared in the Scripture. Uh, first of those is do we believe in Jesus Christ? We have to have that content to our faith that we talked about. That's why Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. And so we need to have that right understanding of who God is. But secondly, there is this work of the Holy Spirit in our life. In Romans 8:16, it's going to say that the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are a child of God. Now, that is somewhat subjective in a person's heart, and yet there needs to be that genuine work of the Holy Spirit. Do you feel that? Do you feel His presence in your life? Do you know God in that way where you are seeing Him at work in your life changing? The third thing, we, we can go to like 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 3-6, to six, talks about how those who say that they are in Jesus Christ should live the way Jesus lived. There should be that evidence of a changed life. There should be that heart change and character change and transformation that's taking place. That's why if somebody says, you know, well, I'm a Christian, and they go to church on Sunday morning, but there's no difference in the way that they live, there's no real change from the world or in attitudes or actions or thoughts, then something's wrong there. It's like a person who claims to have life, but they really don't. And then I think one of the greatest characteristics that Jesus talked about is the characteristic of love. Do you love? Do you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? Have you come to that point where you are a Christ-centered follower who loves God with everything that you have? And that shows in the way that you treat people. It shows in the way you live out your life. It shows in how you use your money. It shows in how you spend your time and the choices that you make. Our assurance of salvation is based upon those things that are clearly stated in God's Word. And when we have that, that change of heart, there is great confidence in our relationship with Him. 
And some people will do things and they'll look religious and they'll look, you know, they make this profession of faith and on the outside they may look good. But God knows the heart and where we truly stand with Him. And I think that's why there will be some surprises on that day of eternity when some who thought they were in are going to find that they were out. And those who maybe we looked at and we weren't sure, God knows their heart. And He will reward each one who has that genuine kind of faith. So our aim is to live in a way that pleases Him and to remove all doubt about that, to continue to grow in our relationship with Christ. Thanks. I think I'll just uh, use that question today as an example. And if you have others uh, that you want to ask, you can always email me and we'll try work this in at other times. But we're going to end with our last worship song. I had a really hard question for you, Rick. <laughs> <laughs>